Hi everyone, this is Grace's On The Case. I'm Graceling Keller, and today I decided I'd bring you something a little different. This will be my final episode of the year, and to mark the end of the year, I wanted to bring you a roundup of some of the most notable true crime headlines from 2022. Between new cases, developments in old ones, and a few well-known cold cases being solved, this year has seen a lot happen in true crime. Many of the cases I'll be covering today are ones I've been tracking all year, and some even before this year, but I just haven't had the resources or in some cases enough information to do a full-fledged episode on each one. So this episode is still allowing me to bring them to you in a different format. And don't worry, I'll be back in the new year after a little break for the holidays to continue bringing you cases each week. So without further ado, here is my 2022 True Crime Headline Roundup. I hope you guys enjoy. The first case I have for you today brings us to Oklahoma and poses the question of the ethics of the death penalty, specifically that of the current method, lethal injection. On May 30th, 2005, Gilbert Ray Postel, his brother David, father Brad, and another associate of the three shot and killed four people at a home in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Before the attack, Postel and his father were involved in a motorcycle accident that left them with brain damage and Postel with a seizure disorder as a result. Angry that his quality of life had declined after the accident and believing that one of the four victims had something to do with the crash, Postel and his three accomplices carried out the shooting as retribution. The attack was downright brutal. Postel and his accomplices gained control over the four victims, marched them outside of the home and into the yard, and then made them kneel down in front of Postel, where he sprayed them with over 30 rounds from an AK-47 rifle. Two of the four victims tried to run after the initial bullets began to fly, but were struck down as the fire continued, being shot from behind. There were few leads in the beginning, but on July 7th, police finally tracked down a van that was seen on surveillance footage, leaving the area of the crime scene. Trace evidence was recovered from the van, and about a month later, Postel and his accomplices were all arrested within days of each other with charges ranging from accessory to murder to murder in the first degree. It was clear to authorities that Postel was the ringleader. Postel received a jury trial in 2008, where he was sentenced to life without parole for two of the victims, and then to two death sentences for the other two that he had shot from behind as they fled. Postel's brother received life without parole, and their associate was given a plea deal in exchange for testifying against the two brothers. Postel's father was deemed incompetent to stand trial due to his own brain injury from the motorcycle accident, and he died in 2011. With Postel being the only one of the group sentenced to death, and his father, who was in the same accident that he was, getting out of the trial altogether, many began to wonder if Postel had truly been fit to stand trial as well, and how much of his decision-making capabilities had been impacted by his brain trauma post-accident. The question became, was it ethical that this man would be put to death? Postel committed a heinous crime, but he had a major brain trauma from the motorcycle crash. Additionally, he was only 18 when he committed this crime. 
Mix those brain issues that began at a crucial time in his cognitive development with the general poor decision-making capabilities of an 18-year-old young man, and you've got a viatile mix. Regardless of your stance on the ethics of the death penalty, it shocks me that this case did not get a closer look for these reasons. But despite this, Postel exhausted all of his appeals in 2011, and the state upheld his sentence. His execution date was set for February 17, 2022. Now, several botched executions in Oklahoma had led to a moratorium on lethal injections between 2015 and 2021. This moratorium was put in place after multiple autopsies suggested evidence that the cocktail of drugs in the injection made its recipients feel the sensation of drowning through a flash pulmonary edema rather than just falling asleep as it was supposed to do. But with the end of the moratorium quickly approaching, Postel and more than two dozen other death row inmates filed a motion to continue this moratorium, saying that they still didn't think the injection would be safe. The courts initially removed six of the inmates from this motion, including Postel, because they had not offered an alternative means of execution for themselves if the injection was again placed under moratorium. The ruling was then reversed, and the six inmates were added back to the motion. In October of 2021, another botched execution using the injection took place, and the inmates on the original motion, with already scheduled execution dates, filed for an injunction, arguing that the state had not resolved the previous issues with the injection. In November, the court rejected this request, and the execution dates stayed in place. In December 2021, Postel had a clemency hearing where his legal team argued that he was not fit for the death penalty. Since his conviction, Postel had been diagnosed with a learning disability and proven to have an IQ in the low 70s, which bordered on the level of mental disability. Despite making a strong case for his mental unfitness, Postel was denied clemency and his death sentence and execution date stood. In January of 2022, Postel and four other inmates asked for an emergency stay of execution long enough so that a trial could be held over the constitutionality of the three-drug lethal injection they were slated to receive. They were still concerned about the possibility of a botched execution and said if they were not able to push their execution dates back, they'd rather be executed by firing squad than the injection. The stay was not granted, and Gilbert Ray Postel was executed by lethal injection on February 17, 2022. The trial for the lethal injection began 11 days later, and in a shocking twist, evidence was brought forward suggesting that a drug mix-up had taken place during Postel's execution, and he had been injected with something that was not an approved execution drug. The Oklahoma Department of Corrections was quick to jump in and say that it was a transcription error and that the correct drug had, in fact, been administered to Postel, which they claimed was verified by employees who prepared the injection. The OCOD maintains Postel's execution was carried out without incident. The trial concluded on June 6, 2022, and the constitutionality of the three-drug lethal injection was upheld, despite the evidence suggesting that it could result in torturous final moments for its recipients. Days later, Oklahoma's governor scheduled executions for 25 more inmates using this injection. 
to, quote, catch up, unquote, with the backlog of inmates who had been granted stays of execution awaiting the outcome of this trial, Oklahoma will be executing an inmate every three weeks for the next two years. The story of Gilbert Ray Postel and the subsequent questions about the legality and ethics of the death penalty has moved many across the country to reevaluate their stance on this penalty and who should be eligible to receive it. I read a particularly moving piece by The Intercept in my research for this episode. It's linked in the show notes, and I highly recommend you read it yourself. The state of Oklahoma has continued its executions since June, and it has no plans to stop. The responsibility of any botched executions now lies in the hands of lawmakers who have ignored the evidence and gruesome record that proves that it is not a constitutional means of execution, as well as the justices on Oklahoma's Supreme Court that have upheld it. All right, so that was quite heavy, but I felt like it was important to cover due to its precedent-setting verdict and the ethical questions that it poses. But now let's move on to our next case, which brings us to California. So this second case begins in October of 1970, when Nancy Marie Benelak was stabbed in her Sacramento, California home. She was only 28 years old and worked as a court reporter at the time. The attack was brutal and a clear case of overkill. She was stabbed over three dozen times and nearly decapitated. The case went cold, though, and her family, fiancé, and loved ones spent 52 years wondering what happened to her. It wasn't until 2022 when investigators utilized the new technique of genealogical DNA tracing to finally identify her killer. That man was Richard John Davis. He had been residing in the same apartment complex as her at the time, and authorities believe he entered Benelak's unit by climbing up to her balcony and breaking through its door. They also believe he wore tape over his fingertips to avoid leaving any prints. Defensive wounds on Benelak's body proved that she had fought back, and the presence of Davis's blood at the scene indicated that he had been badly injured during the attack. He left blood in her apartment and trailing away leading into the parking lot. At the time, investigators couldn't do much but identify the perpetrator's blood type, but the sample was saved and a DNA profile was pulled from it in 2004. In 2019, cold case detectives began a forensic genetic genealogy investigation with the DNA sample. Finally, in August of 2022, authorities held a press conference announcing an identification of the killer had been made. Unfortunately, Davis died in 1997 from the effects of alcoholism. So no criminal charges were filed, but Sacramento officials were glad to be able to finally give Nancy Benelak's loved ones the answers that they had long awaited for. This case, along with many others solved this year through genealogy, marks a new season of investigation that we've only just begun. The advances DNA testing has made since its introduction in the 1990s is so promising for both current crimes as well as cold cases that have sat for years with no answers. There is truly so much that can be done with the smallest ounce of forensic evidence that places for killers and criminals to hide are running out. It's a great time for investigators and for the forensic field. And with that, I'd like to move to case number three, which brings us to the state that I call home, Iowa. This case broke in October of 2022, and I have been relentlessly following it since. 
This is one I would have loved to do a full episode on, but there's just such little information available as of now that I couldn't find enough to flesh it out for you all. So hopefully one day we'll have more answers and I can bring those to you. But for now, let's dive into the allegations against Donald Studi. If the claims against him are true, Studi may be one of the most prolific serial killers in American history. It all started when Studi's adult daughter, Lacey Studi McKitty, came forward to police and alleged that her father had killed numerous women and disposed of them on his rural property in Thurman, Iowa. She said she had flashes of memory from her youth of seeing these victims' bodies and her father disposing of them in and around a 90-foot-deep well on the property. McKitty described the type of victim her father allegedly went after, saying he'd mostly pick up women, quote, who would not be missed, unquote, from the Iowa-Nebraska border and bring them back to his Thurman, Iowa property. This ensured that he wouldn't be connected to the disappearances. She said Studi preferred women in their late 20s and early 30s who were plain dressers and had dark hair. Studi was a gas station attendant, mechanic, and tow truck driver who frequented gas stations, truck stops, and dive bars all over the place, where some of the women could have been abducted from as well. Now, Studi died in 2013, but in life, he was a troubled man who lived in a pocket of land in Thurman, where his family history goes back for nearly 100 years. The county sheriff's office with jurisdiction over Thurman had over 20 incident reports on Studi, showing his history of violent and erratic behavior, including death threats toward his second wife's son and an incident where he shot himself in the arm in the presence of police. And the kicker here is, this isn't even McKitty's first time going to the police about the suspicions she had over her dad. The first was in 2007, after her father had accused her of stealing money from him. The department said they tried to check up on this allegation but couldn't find the area she claimed to have seen the bodies dumped, that large old well that I mentioned. They also had suspicion that McKitty was just saying these things about her father to get the heat off of her for the allegations of stealing money, so they didn't take it as seriously. Now, this second time was last year in 2021 when she came back with further memories, saying she saw Studi and two other men take the body of a woman out of a car trunk and haul it to the same well from her 2007 allegations. She estimated this memory was from 1976 or 77. She also spoke of another memory from 1979 where she saw her father with a body near a cellar on the property and watched him haul it to the well where a second body was lying. In the 2021 report, McKitty said she knew of at least five bodies in the well, but had heard stories of it being closer to 15. It wasn't until the sheriff's office began an official investigation into the property in October of 2022 that the story broke publicly and became international news. Since breaking, McKitty's sister has come out to deny any of the accusations against her father, and McKitty herself reported to another news outlet that she now believes the body count in the well could be up to 70. She said these victims mostly consisted of sex workers and transient women. 
The sheriff in charge of this case said he did not think that it would be up to 70, noting that if that many women went missing from a metropolitan area like Omaha, which is allegedly where Studi was abducting these victims, they would not have gone unnoticed, even with them being women living high-risk lifestyles. If Studi had truly killed that many victims, they would have had to come from other areas as well. Despite the doubt in Studi's total number of victims, McKitty did take the sheriff, some deputies, and cadaver dogs out to the well that she claims her father used as a disposal site. And get this, the dogs hit on the well and three other locations, indicating the presence of decomposing human remains. As of October 28, 2022, the Iowa Department of Criminal Investigation, the Fremont County Sheriff, and the FBI conducted an extensive search of the property following the cadaver dog's hits, but turned up nothing concrete to back McKitty's claims. After this, they planned an excavation of the land where the dogs indicated that there were human remains. This excavation took place on December 8th, where no remains were found. The FBI has since backed away from the investigation, but the IDCI and the Fremont County Sheriff are still investigating. And that pretty much brings us up to the present day here. This story is still developing, like I said at the beginning, and I'll be sure to bring you guys an update if any major break occurs. It's fascinating, though. If McKitty's claims are true and Studi was responsible for the deaths of around 70 victims, it would make him one of the most prolific serial killers in American history. We'll just have to wait and see if anything else is uncovered. Now, let's move on to case number four. For this case, I'm going to focus more on the trial, which wrapped in late October 2022, rather than the crime itself. I'll quickly provide some context, but if you'd like to read more extensively into the incidents, there are articles linked in the show notes. So in November 2021, 39-year-old Darrell Brooks drove his car through a Christmas parade happening in Waukesha, Wisconsin. This resulted in the death of six people and the injury of 62 others. It was revealed through witness statements and Brooks himself that he was fleeing the site of a domestic dispute with his girlfriend when he entered the parade route and drove through the event at a high speed. Facing six counts of first-degree murder and 70 other charges, Brooks initially entered a plea of not guilty by reason of mental disease earlier this year. But days before his trial was set to begin, he withdrew his plea, dismissed his state-provided defenders, and announced that he was defending himself. The proceedings got off to an immediate rocky start, where Brooks got into intense arguments with the judge leading up to jury selection, ending in him being placed in another room to watch and participate via video so that his microphone could be muted when he became too erratic or disruptive. As the trial progressed, Brooks struggled to make a clear defense, attempting to argue that his Ford escape was not working properly, embarking on meandering, repetitive cross-examinations that made little sense, and refusing to recognize his own name, often talking in the third person. At points, he was even heard muttering to himself in the courtroom, saying things like the trial wasn't fair. In a repetitive and long-winded closing statement, Brooks tried to argue that the throttle in the car had malfunctioned, again trying to say that the vehicle was not working properly, and that the driver, which he would not identify as himself, had simply panicked. He also complained that he hadn't been able to see his kids since he was arrested. 
the district attorney had a mechanical expert testify that he had examined the car and it was in perfect working order. In just over three hours, the jury found Brooks guilty on all 76 counts. He was sentenced to six life terms running consecutively without the possibility of parole for his crimes. Judge Jennifer DeRoe said before reading his sentence, quote, you have absolutely no remorse for anything that you do. You have no empathy for anyone. Frankly, Mr. Brooks, no one is safe from you, unquote. This trial was huge news this year, as the crime Brooks committed was heinous, self-serving, and even more, he has never expressed apologies to the victim's families or remorse for his actions. And with that, let's move on to case number five. So this case is arguably the biggest cold case headline we've seen this year. That's right, it's the arrest made in the 2017 double murder of Liberty German and Abigail Williams from Delphi, Indiana. So I'm going to try as best as I can to briefly sum up the case so we can discuss the arrest, but I'm going to have to provide quite a bit of summary so our discussion has the context that it needs. I won't be going over every single detail, but here is the main facts at a 30,000 foot level. And if you do want to take a deep dive into this case, which trust me, there is a lot out there, you can absolutely do that. Refer to the articles in the show notes. Those will be a great starting point. Okay, so in February of 2017, eighth graders Abigail Williams, who went by Abby, and Liberty German, who went by Libby, had a day off of school and decided to go on a hike at the Monon High Bridge in their hometown of Delphi, Indiana. Now, this bridge was kind of an attraction to local teenagers. It's an abandoned railroad bridge that's actually quite dangerous. It isn't part of the marked trails in the park, and it's blocked off by a metal barrier, but many teens will still go hang out there or make the dangerous trek across it as kind of a thrill activity. The bridge itself is wooden and rickety with no guardrails, and it crosses a deep ravine. The slats that make it up are spaced apart, and it wouldn't be hard to fall or trip while crossing it. But 14-year-old Libby, who was often described as fearless, and her more timid 13-year-old companion, Abby, crossed the bridge that day. Now, the plans they made to go on this bridge in the first place were kind of spur of the moment. They were just trying to think of something to do with their day off after Abby had spent the night prior over at Libby's. So they decided to go to the bridge and hike and got a ride there from Libby's 16-year-old sister. They arrived around 1.45 p.m., and the plan was for Libby's dad to pick the girls up around 3 p.m. But when Libby's dad, Derek, arrived at the trailhead at 3.13 p.m., the girls were nowhere to be found, and the calls and texts that he was sending to Libby were going unanswered. So Derek got out of the car and set out on the trail in search of Abby and Libby. Around 3.30, he called Libby's grandmother, who was one of Libby's primary caregivers, and she said that she had not heard from the girls either. Derek also reached out to Libby and Abby's close friends, who had not seen or heard from them that afternoon after they had been dropped off. Libby's sister and the friends that she had been with after dropping Libby and Abby off were also contacted, and none of them had heard from the girls. Derek also encountered a hiker on his search and asked him if he had seen the girls, but he said no. By 5 p.m., a large group of family and friends were searching the trails for Abby and Libby, but no trace of them could be found. After an hour of fruitless searching, police were contacted and the girls were officially reported missing. 
Searches continued into the night and were eventually suspended with a plan to resume the next day. Calls and location pings continued to Libby's phone, but everything began going to voicemail and location services were not working, leading authorities to believe that the phone had either died or been deliberately turned off. The family members and friends of Libby and Abby were also questioned at this time. This is when two uploads to Libby's Snapchat story were discovered, both around 2.07 p.m., about 20 minutes after the girls had been dropped off. The girls' social media usage was also investigated, but at this time, police said that they were fairly certain that they hadn't planned any sort of meeting with an unknown person that day, and whatever happened was probably by chance. The next day, searches continued, and one of Libby's black sneakers was found. Shortly after, a volunteer searcher came upon the bodies of Abby and Libby. Police immediately secured the scene and transitioned the investigation from missing persons to homicide. Now, not much has been officially publicly released in this case regarding the crime scene. Besides being described as extremely odd and, quote, physically strange, unquote, we have no photos released, no description, and not even a cause of death. The following day, police released an image of a man who had been reportedly seen on the bridge. Police said he was not being named a suspect, but they wanted him to come forward as he may have seen something important. The photo itself was incredibly grainy, and the man is looking down, so there isn't a real clear shot of his face. In the next week, when the man in the photo had not come forward or been identified, police came out to say that he now was a suspect. They also released a short clip of audio they said was actually captured from Libby's phone of this same man speaking the phrase, quote, down the hill, unquote. Authorities hailed Abby as a hero, having the presence of mind to record as she began feeling uneasy in the situation. And man, do I agree with that. I mean, she was only 14, you guys. The police also said that the original audio was longer, but they would not be releasing the entire clip. Now, despite all of this evidence being released, the case pretty much stalled and no one could identify this unknown man known as Bridge Guy. Then, four months later, in the face of the investigation going cold, police released a composite sketch of what they thought the man in the photo may look like. The sketch was created by another hiker who had seen the man in the photo that afternoon. Still, nothing came of this, and the man was not identified. Two whole years passed, and then finally, authorities announced that they were taking a new direction in the case. In a press conference on April 22, 2019, police released a short video clip. Now, this video clip was where the still image of that man on the bridge had been pulled from, as well as where the audio phrase that was released was pulled from. The video showed the suspect walking toward the camera from a distance. They also released a new sketch of a more youthful-looking man, making the original sketch secondary and releasing one more word of the audio clip. Quote, guys, unquote, was now said before the phrase that we had already heard, down the hill. 
In this press conference, authorities were adamant that they suspected that the suspect was hiding in plain sight and felt that he would almost certainly be a local who lived, worked, or was otherwise very familiar with Delphi. Still, after these efforts, the case remained cold. That is until October 26, 2022, when police arrested Richard Allen, a 50-year-old Delphi local, out of the blue. Then, at a press conference on the 31st, authorities announced that Allen was being charged with two counts of murder. Allen entered a plea of not guilty at his initial hearing two days later. They kept most other information to themselves, as they had with the entire investigation to this point, saying that things were still ongoing and that revealing too much could be compromising. The probable cause affidavit that led to the arrest was temporarily sealed, which is also highly unusual. This case has been baffling for many reasons, but the big reason was the deficit of information available to the public since the minute it began. Many assumed the public would finally be privy to the details if an arrest was made, but this had yet to be the case. So who exactly is Richard Allen and what do we know about him? Allen is a local to Delphi, and he works at the town's CVS. He's married, he has a now-adult daughter, and his family home is less than five minutes away from where Abby and Libby were found. He had no criminal record up until this point. Many in the town came out after his arrest to say that Allen seemed like a completely normal guy, and they never suspected him of anything. Family members of Abby and Libby even remember him processing photos for them after the crime which honestly reading that gave me the biggest ick in the worst way. There's even a photo of him in one of the articles that I used as source material that was pulled from social media, posing for a selfie where you can see the police sketch of the bridge suspect in the background. So needless to say, this arrest seemed to have come just completely out of the blue. And with the probable cause affidavit sealed, no one really knew what the police finally had to get the green light to take him in. That is until November 29th, 2022, when a partially redacted version of that affidavit was released to the public. In this document, which is linked in the show notes if you'd like to read it, and I suggest you do, Allen is linked to an unspent 40 caliber round found near one of the girl's bodies. Prior to this, an unspent round being found was not public information or the fact that a gun was even somehow mixed up in the crime. This bullet, along with witness statements about his physical appearance and voice, closely resembling the description, images, and audio recording of the bridge suspect, is what the police used in the probable cause affidavit to arrest Allen. The document also revealed that police had interviewed Allen all the way back in 2017, shortly after the murders, confirming that he had been on their radar since the beginning and really was hiding in plain sight. Despite this, though, his name was never publicly linked to the crime. The affidavit also revealed several key pieces of information that have never before been made public, giving us a better understanding of what happened that day on the bridge. We get more information about what the full video clip captured on Libby's phone. It began at 2.13 p.m., while the bridge suspect was still slightly a bit away from the girls, and abruptly ends when the suspect says the now infamous phrase that was released to the public, quote, guys down the hill, unquote. 
It's also written that towards the end of the video, you can hear one of the girls say the word, quote, gun, unquote. This, along with the unspent round found at the crime scene, insinuates that a gun was the method used to control the girls before their murder. There are also numerous witness statements outlined in the document that attest to others on the trails, roads, and parking lots near the trailhead witnessing a person matching the description of the bridge suspect out that day during the time frame of the crime. This includes one witness who said the man's jacket was, quote, muddy and bloody, unquote, when they saw him. We also get some more information about the 2017 interview with Allen, where an FBI agent actually made a note to follow up with him, but this follow-up never appeared to have happened. It wasn't until October of this year that detectives reviewing the case found this note and interviewed Allen for a second time, which led to a search warrant being executed at his property. Allen's wife was also interviewed and testified that Allen owned firearms and knives that were kept at their home, and he also owned a dark blue Carhartt jacket that matched the description of the jacket that the bridge suspect was wearing the day of the murders. Police went in to look for these items, which is what led to that match being made between one of his guns and the unspent bullet from the crime scene. Now, I do want to point out that the police are still not ruling out the possibility that there are others connected to the murders, and if so, they will face charges as well. But as of now, it's reported that Allen is not cooperating with the ongoing investigation, so it sounds like that information will not be coming from him. The tragedy in all of this is that Allen could have been apprehended much earlier if that original note from the FBI agent hadn't been missed. But at least we can be grateful that he was arrested, even if it took a little longer than it should have. Allen is being held in a state prison facility in Indiana for his own safety, and the court dates are already set. A bond hearing is set for February 17, 2023, and his trial will begin on March 20th. I'll be following the entire case closely, and I'll be sure to bring you any pertinent updates. And with that, let's close out this episode with one more case. Now, this final case I'll be covering today is the murder of four college students in Moscow, Idaho. This case has garnered so much attention since it happened on November 13th, 2022, and I would love to one day bring you a full episode on it. But right now, so little information is public knowledge, so I'm going to do my best to sum up what we officially know so far for you now. I do just want to note how much citizen web sleuthing is going on with this case right now, and in many cases that can be helpful. But in my opinion, it's gotten out of hand with this one. A lot of misinformation is circulating, and many are sharing theories as fact online, and it's honestly getting a little witch-hunty. I don't want to fall into the misinformation trap, so for that reason, I'm only sharing information I've pulled from reputable news sources. So if I don't cover a detail you remember hearing about, or if you feel like I left something important out, that's probably because it hasn't been officially released by authorities or reported on by a reputable news source at this time. So just like, please don't come for me, y'all. <laughs> okay? Okay. So on the night of November 12th, 2022, Roommates Madison Mogan and Kaylee Gonsalves spent time into the early morning hours of November 13th at a downtown bar. Another one of their roommates, Zana Kernodal, and her boyfriend Ethan Chapin went to a party at Chapin's fraternity house, Sigma Chi. 
Kernodal and Chapin arrived at Kernodal's home around 1.45 a.m. after the party the morning of the 13th and went to sleep in Kernodal's bedroom. Mogan and Gonsalves were caught on a Twitch live stream at 1.41 a.m. at a late-night food truck, which was on their route home from the bar they were at. In this video, they appear completely normal, they get their food, and they leave. They do not look scared, they're not acting outwardly strange, and do not appear to be in danger. They were returned to the home around 1.56 a.m. by a sorority sober driver. And just a quick side note for clarity, Mogan and Gonsalves were part of the Pi Beta Phi sorority on their campus, and many chapters of Greek life across the country have some sort of sober driving system. And this basically means a chapter member either volunteers or is assigned a sober night where they're on call for other chapter members, kind of like an Uber service. So yeah, this wasn't like an actual ordered Uber with a timestamp receipt or a stranger driving them home. The person that dropped them off was a member of their sorority. Now, the house had five women living there, Mogan, Gonsalves, Kernodal, and two others, Dylan Mortensen and Bethany Funkon. Those two were at other functions the evening of the 12th and arrived home around 1 a.m. on the 13th, going to sleep in their respective bedrooms. So all five roommates, plus Chapin, were home by around 2 a.m. Mortensen and Funcon were asleep by this point, and it's believed that Chapin and Kernodal were as well. But as far as Mogan and Gonsalves go, we know that they were not asleep. Gonsalves called her ex-boyfriend, Jack DeCior, seven times between 2.26 a.m. and 2.44 a.m. It's reported that they had recently split up before the murders, so a lot of people have pointed at this as odd. But honestly, like, drunk calling your ex when you're in your early 20s, not really that odd. Especially if they had just split. But anyway, we're going to put a pin in that, and we'll come back to it later. Now, I do want to make a note of how the house is laid out, because this will become extremely important as we begin to discuss the details of the crime scene. So the home had three levels, and it was built kind of into the side of a hill. So the first level was only accessible by a door on the back of the house from the outside, which was off of a parking lot. What most would consider the front door, which opened up to the front street and was on the front of the house, was on the opposite side and opened up onto the second floor. So the bedrooms in the home were split between the levels, with two bedrooms each on the first floor, second floor, and third floor. Mortensen and Funcon lived in the rooms on the first floor. Kernodal lived in one of the rooms on the second floor. And then a roommate that had moved out a couple months prior was actually still on the lease and used to live in that other bedroom on the second floor. And then Mogan and Gonsalves lived in the room on the third floor. So again, by 2 a.m.-ish in the morning, everyone on the second and first floors are believed to be in their rooms, probably asleep, but we know Gonsalves is awake until at least 2.44 a.m. because of those phone calls, and it becomes clear later that Mogan was also awake with her. In the later morning hours of November 13th, a call was made to 911 from either Mortensen or Funkan's phone at 11.58 a.m. It's unclear whose phone was used, but we know from official reports that it was one of the two first floor roommates. This call reported somebody on the second floor of the home was unconscious and unresponsive. Multiple people spoke to the dispatcher on this call, and authorities were sent to the home. It was there that they found a gruesome scene, far from just an unconscious person. 
So it's believed that between 3 and 4 a.m. on November 13th, someone stabbed Zana Kernodal, Ethan Chapin, Madison Mogan, and Kaylee Gonsalves to death on the second and third floors of their home. Dylan Mortensen and Bethany Funkan survived the attack and found one of the victims on the second floor after waking up the next morning. Upon the discovery, they called a friend over to the house, most likely because they were frightened, and then all three of those people called the police. The crime was originally discussed as a crime of passion the following day, before authorities quickly backtracked and said that they were looking into many possible motives. They did say that they believed that there was no possible risk to the public due to the information they gathered during the preliminary investigation. On November 16th, police informed the public that the two surviving roommates were in fact at home the time of the attack and most likely slept through it. They also said there were no signs of forced entry to the home and walked back the original claim that there was no threat to the public. It was revealed the authorities had no suspects and whoever did this was still out there. On the 17th, the autopsies were released, and the official manner and means of all four deaths was announced as homicide by stabbing. Each victim had multiple stab wounds, and some had defensive wounds. The coroner concluded that they had all been ambushed in their sleep, but the presence of defensive wounds on some of the victims meant that they woke up during the attack and attempted to defend themselves. There was no sign of sexual assault. On November 21st, police announced that a dog had been found skinned and filleted three weeks prior in another area of town, and this event was not related to the murders. I'm so sad I just had to say those words, but yeah, not related. Okay. They also revealed that Gonsalve's own dog was in the home when the murders took place, but was unharmed. The following day, the internet was set ablaze again when the realization that Kaylee Gonsalves may have had a stalker came to light. According to multiple sources, Gonsalves told both friends and members of her family that she believed that she had a stalker. There was also an incident in October where two young men followed her into a local business, followed her around that store, and then followed her out to her car, but were said by witnesses to have never made contact with her. Police said they had investigated, quote, hundreds of pieces of information, unquote, related to a possible stalker, but they were unable to uncover any concrete information about the existence of or identity of a possible stalker. On November 29th, the five vehicles belonging to the roommates were towed to be stored in a city facility and are still considered to be a part of the crime scene. The following day, a family member of the victims revealed that Mogan and Gonsalves were asleep in the same bed when attacked, making it most plausible that they were both awake when Gonsalves called her ex-boyfriend and were probably together on the third floor at this time, falling asleep next to each other in one of the girls' rooms. Authorities also released a list of people who they had cleared, which included the two surviving roommates, a man in a hoodie seen behind Mogan and Gonsalves in the food truck Twitch livestream, the sober driver who took Mogan and Gonsalves home, Gonsalves' ex-boyfriend whom she made those calls to, and the sixth student that was on the lease who had moved out months earlier. The following week, on December 7th, police released a public appeal for information about a car scene in the immediate vicinity of the home at the time of the crime, as well as its occupants. The vehicle is a 2011 to 2013 white Hyundai Elantra, and the police believe those inside the car at the time may have crucial information related to the crime. 
On December 12th, Kaylee Gonsalves' parents sat down with Fox News for an interview where her father revealed some crucial new information about his daughter's injuries, as well as shared his family's frustrations with the way the police had handled the case so far, calling them, quote, cowards, unquote. He stated his daughter's injuries were much more severe than the others. He described them as, quote, big open gouges, unquote, and said they definitely did not match the other victims' wounds. Quote, they may have individually died from the same exact thing, being stabbed, but there are more details. They are not even close to matching, unquote. The final update we have is from December 18th, when video surveillance footage surfaced of Mogan and Gonsalves walking downtown near the bar they were at with an unknown man in a hoodie who looks like he may be the same person from the food truck's Twitch live stream. The one that's behind the girls in line and also the one that was on the list of people who were ruled out by police. This footage was captured shortly before they reached the food truck. And that's pretty much all of the updates we've got at this point. It's currently December 21st, 2022, and I've waited to record this part of the episode in case more information came to light, but it seems like things are pretty much at a standstill. Police have released very little information beyond the cause and manner of death, and many have expressed distrust in the Moscow police's handling of the case because of how much they've contradicted themselves in official statements. The Hyundai Elantra seems to be the only concrete lead available. Now, with all of these little bits and pieces of information, it's really hard to say what happened, but I'm going to give you my best theory to close out this episode. So here's my theory disclaimer as usual. This is not fact, it's just what I think happened after all of my research. I believe that this was a targeted attack, most likely directed at Kaylee due to her father's comments. Whether the perpetrator knew her well or not, I'm not sure, and I do think he had been to the house a couple times, but I don't think he knew it well enough to know which room was hers. The most likely scenario, in my opinion, is that the murderer entered on the second floor through what was considered to be the front door. He checked the bedroom on that floor and found Zana, Kernodal, and Ethan Chapin and stabbed them because they weren't who he was looking for, and he didn't want to risk them waking up while he was attacking the person he had come for. He then probably ascended to the third floor bedrooms and found Madison Mogan asleep with Kaylee Gonsalves and stabbed both of them to death in the bedroom they had fallen asleep together in. Then, having attacked and killed the person he was targeting, fled the house. I think the two surviving roommates were not attacked because of luck. They were on the first floor, and if the killer had come in on the second, the most logical place for him to continue searching for his target in the middle of the night was upstairs, since that's where bedrooms typically are. And then, after doing what he came to do, he left, possibly not even knowing there were more people on the lower level in the first place. I also believe it's entirely plausible that Mortensen and Funkan slept through the night while the attacks happened. People keep pointing the finger at them and saying there's no way they could have slept through it and casting suspicion onto them. But think about it. They were out drinking all night and probably came home and passed out. Couple that with one or two stories of a house between you and what's happening, and I don't find that unreasonable. Plus, police confirmed all four victims were ambushed in their sleep, some only waking up after they had already begun being stabbed. So I don't think it would have been a particularly loud or drown-out attack with any one victim because they had all originally been asleep in the first place. 
And since Gonsalves's dog was proven to be home during the attack, I think it means that most likely this person had met the dog before, had maybe been in the house one or two times because the dog was not reported to have been barking very loudly or for a long amount of time by neighbors or really waking up anybody, including those roommates on the first floor. Now, the one piece of information that kind of throws a wrench in this is that there was no sign of forced entry. But I do think it could be entirely possible that Mogan and Gonsalves accidentally left the door unlocked when they arrived home at night. I mean, think about it. They had just been out drinking and it was 2 a.m. They probably weren't 100% clear-headed. It's totally possible that the door or even a window or patio door or something else was left ajar or unlocked, giving the killer an easy way in. And also, the house was described as a party house by many. And thinking back to my own college experience, a lot of times those houses that were considered party houses really never locked their door anyway. I'm not saying that this was the case in this situation, but from personal experience, I know that that was often the case. So it's possible that they just didn't lock their door at all out of habit. I don't think the man in the hoodie was involved. I think he most likely was either at the bar the girls were at or ran into them on his way to the food truck. And since they were all going to the same place, they just walked together. Whether he was a friend, acquaintance, or someone they had just met that night, I think his encounter with them was completely innocent. I also don't think Gonsalves' ex-boyfriend had anything to do with it either. Yes, she called him seven times, but I think this was most likely some sort of drunk-calling-your-recent-ex type of shenanigans and also totally innocent. The one idea I could believe, though, is that maybe something spooked the girls and they called him to come by and check the house out. Like, maybe they heard some weird noises or met a creepy person at the bar or something. I don't know. But that could be a possibility, too. I just don't think he was the one who actually did it, even with Gonsalves looking like the intended target of the attack with those worst wounds. But that pretty much sums up my theory of what happened. Unfortunately, until more information is released, we just don't know for sure what actually happened that night or even any additional crime scene details. The investigation is ongoing and there are still no suspects. If you think you have any pertinent information to the investigation, you can call 208-883-7180 or email tipline at ci.moscow.id.us. And that concludes our first ever year-end headline roundup. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review if you enjoyed this episode, especially if you liked this format. All of my source material will be listed in the show notes and on the show's website, gracesonthecasepodcast.com, and you can contact me there or through Instagram DM at gracesonthecasepodcast for comments, corrections, or suggestions for future cases. And like I mentioned at the top, I'll be on a short break for the holidays, but I'll see you all in the new year for our next case. (music) 